Parshas Re'eh. In Parshas Re'eh, the section of the one who attempts to persuade a fellow Jew to worship Avodah Zara begins like this. Ki yisitcha achicha ben imecha lemor. When your brother will try to persuade you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, from the gods of the nations that are nearby or those that are far off. Now we know that every phrase in the Torah is measured. Every word is valuable. And that's why the Gemara in Sanhedrin asks the following. What difference does it make whether the instigator is telling you about idols that are near or idols that are far away? What's the nafkamina between an idol in the mountains of Tibet or a fortune teller in Bensonhurst? Now we'll get to the answer soon. The significance of those extra words will be our subject for tonight. But first, we'll listen to an introduction that will help us understand the importance of the answer we're going to hear. Everyone knows that on Rosh Chodesh, a special offering is brought in the Beis HaMikdash. Why do I say special? Because it says there in Bamidbar that it's a chatat Hashem, a sin offering for Hashem. Now that's very unusual because we don't find such a language anywhere else. Every offering is made to Hashem, but on Rosh Chodesh, it's the only time it says a sin offering for Hashem. It's something unique in the Torah. And so the Gemara in Shavuos tells us that it means that Hashem is saying, bring a sin offering on my behalf, a korban to atone for me. Now that's certainly something out of the ordinary. Actually, it makes no sense at all. Why did Hashem do that? He needs an atonement? So Hashem tells us, because I made the moon so small, that was my sin. The moon should have been as big as the sun, like it says, et the two great luminaries. But I made it small, says Hashem. And therefore I want to atone for the wrong that I did. That's my misdeed, my misdeed kaviachol. Bring a chatas for me. Now we understand that there are secrets here. And so we'll, we'll explain it as follows. It's a parable, a lesson intended to teach us a very important principle. We know that the Umas Ha'olam have a solar year. They calculate the year by the sun. Their months are sun months, whereas our months are lunar months. That's why the little moon is peculiarly a Jewish symbol. And what does it symbolize? That the Am Yisrael has been made by Hashem, the Ma'at Mikol Ha'amim, the smallest of all people. The nations of the world, you have to know, no matter how diverse they are, and no matter how many they are, but altogether they comprise one vast majority in opposition to the Am Yisrael. It makes no difference whether they are Mohammedans, Christians, Buddhists, evolutionists, humanists, or just plain materialists. All the people of the world stand on one side of history, and we stand facing them on the other. There's nothing among the nations of the world that can equate to what the Jewish people stand for. Because it's only the Jewish people who stand for Hashem, who gave us the Torah at Sinai. That's how we sum it up in one sentence. We're the nation that accepts to live by the attitudes that Hashem delivered to us at Har Sinai. And that means that we, the smallest nation, have to stand up against the whole world. All the falsifiers who stand up against us. 
Now, whether an individual is a chosid or misnagid, it doesn't make any difference. You could be Sephardi, Ashkenazi, no difference. Altogether, we were Makab of the Torah at Har Sinai, and we were standing faithfully by that. And we are standing faithfully by that. No matter, even when you look at all of us, it's still a very small number. In the Jewish people, it's the Jewish people and nobody else. There's only one little nation. That's what makes us the Ma'at Mikol Amim, the smallest of all nations, because we're the only ones in the universe who stand for the truth. Now the, quest, the question is, such a nation, such a historic nation that was created to stand by the most important principle in the world, does it make any sense that we should be in the minority? It didn't have to be this way. According to what we imagine, should have been, according to what we imagine, should have been the best plan. The Am Yisrael should have been at least as numerous and as powerful as the other nations of the world together. After all, we are the people of the Torah. We are the nation that bears the truth. So let's say all of Asia, all of Europe, maybe Australia too, should be for us. If Hashem wishes, He could give the Goyim Canada and America as a consolation prize. Maybe South America too. Maybe. That's how it should be. And who should be sitting on the thrones? The Rosh Yeshiva, the Big Rabbanim. They should have golden crowns on their heads. Who should be in the White House? Rav Pam, let's say. The Rosh Yeshiva of Torah He's the one who should be sitting in the White House. Yes, Rav Pam. Why not? He's a Tiyar Yid, a big Chochem. We'd have Rav Pam in the White House and a whole world full of Jews. But instead, we're the Ma'at Mikol Ha'amim, the smallest people. In the eyes of the Umas Ha'olam, we are, we are the lowliest of nations. We're vilified and calumniated. calumniated. We live in a world where there are churches everywhere. There are colleges in every city. Atheism, materialism, and false ideas surround us on all sides. And it's the from Jews, those who are the purpose of creation, who are the small minority. And who's to blame that it's not that way? HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's what he says. And that's why on every Rosh Chodesh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you should have been the biggest. That's what should have been. And so bring a sin offering to atone for me for having made the moon. That means the Am Yisrael small. Let's understand that. We know very well that Hashem doesn't need any kapara. Sadiq Hashem b'chol drocha v'chasid b'chol ma'asav. He is righteous and kindly in all of his ways and everything he does. So if he made the Am Yisrael small, we know it's a great benefit for us. It's righteous and kindly. Absolutely. And so we'll have to understand what this righteous and kindly purpose that Hashem intended was when Hashem made the moon small. It means that He's making it dark in this world. And if the Am Yisrael is small, it means that the world is covered with a veil of Choshech. The fact that the Jew does not occupy all the seats of power, I'm talking about real Jews, means that the world is bumbling floundering around in darkness. And no, there's no reason why it should be so. We would have had already illuminated the whole world with our Torah ideals by now. 
We have authentic Jews who are brilliant men. Our Gedolim have excellent minds. Rabbi Sol Salanter could have taught philosophy in the universities. No question about that. And he would have lit up the world. And instead, who's teaching the world? Shikurim, beer drinkers, immoral professors, minuvolim, low-class bums are educating the world. We have great men who could have been a light to the nations, and Hashem deprived the world of that. And so, bring for me an atonement, says Hashem, because I deprived the world of this great light that could have been a benefit for them all. And yet we understand that this is all the plan of Hashem. What we're learning now is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was forced to make the Am Yisrael small because this world can only thrive in darkness. Otherwise, the entire purpose of the world is, is, is vitiated. The world would lose its purpose if there would be too much light. If the Am Yisrael would be Yadam Rama, if they would spread over the world just like Christianity and Islam did, then we would lose out inestimably. It's a great benefit that we're small. It's the darkness that makes this world great. And that's because we're going to gain a great reward for standing firm against the apikorsim and the atheists, against the colleges and the libraries and the newspapers. We achieve perfection by not bending before the big churches and cathedrals, by not, by not submitting before the mosques and all the falsehoods of the umasa'ilam. And that's the purpose of our being a minority. It was made that way by Hashem in order that we should have the opportunity to stand up against the whole world and proclaim Hashem Elokei Yisrael Echad and get the great reward of Lefum Sara Agra. Lefum Sara Agra means that according to the difficulty will be the reward. By standing in opposition to the great empires of the world, by being surrounded on all sides by false ideals and cultures that try to tempt you, and despite everything, you stand up and say, I'm not interested. No matter what the world says, I'm proclaiming that Hashem Echad. That's our greatness, our loyalty. So Hashem says, for that... You are going to get a reward that you could have never gotten had you have been a great and powerful empire. The fact you're ma'at mikola amim, that's your greatness and that's your success. Now there's a pasuk that we all know. We say it every morning. It's an important verse and you should think about it. Hu Hashem mishpatov. He is Hashem our God and he's conducting all the affairs of the world. The two parts of the Pasuk explain one another. For what purpose does he conduct all the, the affairs of the world? Because he is Hashem, our God. It's not in the role of the Creator alone that he runs the world. It's in the role of Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem, our God. Now to know how far this goes, we'll pay attention to what we say in Borchi Nafshi. Hashem made the moon for the festivals. Moadim means Ela Moade Hashem, the Jewish festivals. That's a remarkable statement. Why did Hashem make the moon? So that the Am Yisrael should utilize the moon to know when Rosh Chodesh is. When we know Rosh Chodesh, 
So we'll know when Pesach comes, when Shavuos comes, and when Sukkot comes. Now that may sound to you a very, very chauvinistic, very parochial and narrow-minded. Here's a little nation down below looking up at the moon saying, it's our moon. It's a Jewish moon. If a Gentile would hear that, he would give a big guffaw. Ha, ha, ha. If we would say it aloud, we're ashamed to say such a thing out loud. The whole world would laugh at us. The New York Times would make a cartoon about that. A little Jew in a kapoite, surrounded by all the nations. And this little Jew is pointing at the moon saying, it's my moon. They would put a yarmulke on the moon and ridicule us. But the truth is that it is for us. The whole universe is for us. That's the truth. Hashem is ours and everything that he does in this world is done because of us. And therefore, when there comes an Eastern religion or a new ism, a new fad, a new ideology, it doesn't come merely to tempt the Gentiles. Some Gentiles fall for it. That's true. But that's not the purpose, however. The purpose is to tempt Jews. If there are missionaries walking around, they're not sent here merely to tempt the Mohammedans or to trap atheists. They're here to offer a trial to Jews. If the colleges are so busy today propagating the theory of evolution, you think it just happens to be a scientific theory for the people in the world to be tested? No, it's only because of us. Darwin was given the idea of expounding his theory only because of us. We have to get that into our heads. And our success depends on confronting all of these ideals with the knowledge that they were made because of us. Because no matter where we are, no matter how secluded we try to remain, the attitudes of the outside world seep into our mind. And the difficulty of fighting against the hundreds of thousands of ideas that percolate in the air around us, that's our success. That's the great happiness of succeeding in this world. And that's why Hashem made the Am Yisrael little. It should be a dark world and we should live successful lives by battling, by saying, nothing doing. I'm not accepting the foolishness of the tremendous outside world. We always must remember what the Chachamim, what the Chachamim admonished us. You should know what to reply to an apikoidus. Now the Slobodka Rosh Yeshiva of Isaac Sher, Zichron Levrocha, used to say that it means know how to answer up this apikoris right here. The Rav pointed at himself. Because inside of everybody, there's a Yetzir Hara that's talking. All the ideas of the outside world are seeping into our minds. And therefore, you have to answer to yourself. The Chayvah Salavavah in his Sharj Yichud Hamase says, do not ignore the prompting of the Yetzir Hara because it's like a snake bite. You have to do something about it. You can't just ignore it and let the poison spread. And if, it will tu- and if you will turn away your ear from the argument that you feel the Yetzir Hara is gen- generating within you, so it begins to gain a foothold. That's why the Chayvah Salavavah says that immediately you should take care of it. Now, how to take care of it, there's more than one method. Of course, some will say that the answer to all of the apikorsim, our response to all the false attitudes of the outside world, is one. 
that we, the Am Yisrael, rely on our solid historic tradition. That's it. We don't have any questions. I'm loyal to the Torah and that's it. And that's a very valid and very strong answer. It's the answer that should stand always in the forefront of our minds because it's true. But because we were placed in a world where we live side by side with those who live, who, with those who live of materialism and because we are forced to contend with so many falsehood, falsehoods, HaKadosh Baruch Hu provides us with other methods as well. And that brings us back to the question of the Gemara on our Pasuk that we asked in the beginning of the lecture. If you fell asleep already, wake up now because we're coming back to the answer. When the Torah tells us about the persuader, the one trying to introduce into our heads the ideas of the outside world, why does the Pasuk take the trouble to enumerate that there are gods that are nearby and those that are far off? It seems to be words that are unnecessary. And the Gemara answers like this. From the nature of the nearby gods, you can learn about the nature of the far off ones. Just as there is no substance in these, there also is no substance in those. That means the Torah inserts these words in order to give us direction for how to refute all the persuaders of the world, all of them. Just as you know that the nearby gods are nothing, so too you can understand that the far off ones are also worthless. They're just the same. If someone tells you that some place in a far-off country, in a distant shrine, there is an idol that eats what is put before it, and it can speak too, and he tells you there are even witnesses who can testify that it's so. So the Torah says, look at the ones nearby, because their worshippers also have the same claim. And you know that they're false, because the nearby gods are already familiar. You've been observed, you, they've been observed, observed by you. So from the nature of the near ones, you can know about the far, the far off ones. Just like the near ones are nothing, the far off ones are also nothing. We're now learning about the great plan of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to supply us what, with edifying parallels. One of the important ways that Hashem picks up the veil of darkness in this world and lets us have a glimpse of the truth is by means of parallels. The Rambam says this in his Moed in Evuchim. He says, Hashem lifts up the veil of darkness for you to see the truth. You get a glimpse of the truth and that little bit opens up your eyes to everyone and to everything else. And so if we encounter a certain system, a certain philosophy or ideology that seems to contradict the Torah, we may be discouraged. However, we're hearing now an important principle that's very useful. It's one of the dark Hashem. In order to expose the falsehood of the Gentile ideologies, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given us certain ways of fortifying our amuna by refuting them. He supplies us with the ways of discovering the Sheked of the Umas Oilam. And one of these ways is being taught to us in our Pasuk. The Kroivim, the few things that we do see, should serve as parallels. And that's the subject of this talk, learning to draw parallels. And we say, just as these are nothing, so too those others far away are nothing as well. Now don't say, 
Could we do such a thing? Can we make such rash and general judgments about the whole groups of people and about ideologies that we know nothing about just because one thing that we do know? Yes, we do that because that is the intention of Hashem. Hashem is supplying these lessons to us so that we should make these general judgments and dismiss the ideals of the outside world. The falsifiers whom we do know are intended by Hashem to serve as examples of the falsifiers who we do not and who are not nearby. And the falsifications, the emptiness of even one ideal is intended to demonstrate the emptiness of all of them. And so we don't have to study the details in order to disprove it all. We could, we could sit here for hours and talk about the foolishness of their ideas and could show you endless examples, but we don't have to. The lesson from this week's parsha allows us to, to allows us to study one thing or a few things and to use those as parallels to understand that everything they have to offer us is mixed with sheker. Now this principle is something that we have to make use of all the time. It's not just claims of meat-eating idols and wizards and fortune tellers. All the isms, all the religions can succeed. They can gain adherence and spread over the world. But we always fall back on this principle of studying what we see. The ideologies that already took over the world. And drawing parallels to everything else. Here you have a religion that took over the world. The whole Western world was taken over by Christianity. It's so big, it's tremendous. And yet if you study it a little bit, you see it's nothing at all. We might be impressed by their propaganda, a religion of love, of turning the other cheek. It's so beautiful, you think. And such a religion, you'll say, maybe they have saints after all. If you hear of a saint about them, about whom you know nothing, and, you've told, and you're told that he performed miracles and he was elevated to sainthood and a cathedral was built in his honor. So without knowing anything about saints, you might think, well, there are some good goyim. Maybe he was something. That's what you would suppose. Why not? And so we make use of this Torah principle of drawing parallels and we investigate the matter. In Rin, that's a municipality in Austria, That's a big cathedral that was erected in honor of a certain saint, Blessed Andrew. And how did this Andrew acquire sainthood? By what virtues did he he distinguish himself? Did he hide away in a room for many years, praying and studying? Or maybe he did some other great deeds that earned him the approbation of the Vatican. Maybe he wrote some learned works. No, nothing like that. He earned sainthood in a more expeditious way. When he was still a young boy, he was found slain. They found this poor boy dead, and he became a saint immediately. So any goy who's found dead becomes a saint? No. Here was something different. Because attached to his death, there was a canard, a slander on the Jewish community. The, Christi- the Christians began to spread the word that this boy had been killed in order to have blood for matzahs on Pesach. The papal bull Betus Andreas stated clearly that he was killed by the Jews for his blood. And if that's the case, so the whole thing, the whole process of sainthood was speeded up. Instead of many years of fasting and praying in a monastery, he took the shortcut and, and was immediately elevated to sainthood. 
He's an official saint in Christian theology. Because anybody who's killed by Jews, he's walking in the footsteps of the first one. You know who I'm referring to. And he was declared forthwith to be a saint, officially. That's what they built, a great cathedral in his honor in Australia. Austria. It's still standing there. When you walk in there, when you walk in, there's a big inscription telling you that it was built in honor of this and this saint who was murdered by Jews for his blood. It's still there. And of course, because of this accusation, Jews were executed. Plenty of Jews lost their lives because of this. There were others too. There's the great Sadiq, Saint William of Norwich in England. What were his good deeds for which he was elevated to sainthood? You might think that he was a man who went around giving charity to the poor, picking up stray dogs and taking them home, doing other kind deeds. No, he also got there by the quick way. He possessed the great qualities of Andrew. He was also claimed to have been killed by the Jews of their Pesach for their Pesach pastries. Well, we know the whole story. We know that it was Sheket Vekazov. Never in history did Jews do anything even slightly, even faintly resembling it. Jews wouldn't even touch a drop of blood in an egg. To make matzahs with blood is out of the question. It's as ridiculous as the most silly fairy tale. And yet this fairy tale is a great lesson for us. Because if that is the basis for big cathedrals, it's not a small place, by the way. It's a huge cathedral, one of the most impressive buildings in Christendom. And that's the basis for sainthood. That we have to know, then we have to know that it's a parallel to all the cathedrals. They're all the same. It's meant for us as a lesson. So we should know what all the cathedrals are about. You're obligated. It's your duty, it's your duty to take the lesson of Blessed Andrew and Saint William of Norwich. Alehem Hashunubul and say, Kishem She'ein Mamash Bikrovim. Just as these are nothing, they're just Shkatsim, plain bums who were killed by other bums. And the other bums blamed it on the Jewish people. That's all it was. Going, stabbing each other. It's all Sheker Vikozov. They're not much of saints. They're not much, they're not much of saints. The dog in the street is more saintly than they were. That's the same amount of holiness and sainthood in all their saints and cathedrals. So, now we have two great men who testify about all the others. We look back and see that the way that they were sent for a purpose, and the purpose was to let us know who the great men, who the church saints are. And don't think it's, it's an unimportant piece of information. Th- to the church, these bums are Kedoshim. They're listed among the saints of the church, and we're supposed to learn from them. And this is what Christian saint is. This is what a Christian saint is. All the rest of the saints, even those about whom we know nothing, are all in the same boat as these. That's how we're supposed to judge them. Kishem she'en mamish bazeh, kach ein mamish bazeh. And if we follow this example laid down for us in our parsha, we're going to discover that the world is full of them. History is full of such things. And they're not isolated phenomena. They're valid parallels given to us to study. Wherever we look, we're going to see examples of things that serve as parallels to open our eyes. And that's our obligation, to study them and to see the great bluff. And then, from those krovim, 
to make parallels to everything else that we haven't studied. That's how we look at all the ideologies of the Gentiles and the secular Jews in order to help us recognize the worthlessness of the ideas they promote and teach. HaKadosh Baruch Hu grants us examples. He lifts up the curtain and we see that the ideals they promote are nothing at all. For example, if you want to know the value of the Nobel Prize for Literature, so we choose just one of the writers who was awarded that coveted prize, Isaac Bashevis Singer. What did he write? Smutty Yiddish novels. That's all. And so we already understand that the Nobel Prize for Literature, what the Nobel Prize for Literature means. It's worthless. It's nothing at all. The whole business today of entertainment, of movies and television, all of the books too, are based on Arias. What that means is that the whole world is engaged in nothingness. Their lives are hevel varik. They are excited over nothing at all. Even some things that are naturally attractive. They are so, there are some things that by nature a person has a temptation, but they have been taken tremendously out of proportion. Now we won't speak about this particular branch of foolishness anymore. But you have to know that a great amount of trees, very, merry, many, very many forests have been cut down for books about this wickedness. We'll take one more example. We'll come back to our good old America. America. I'm a patriot. I believe in America. But there are some things that are sheked. They're not harmful, but they're sheked. And that's what matters to us. To recognize that the Gentile culture, their history, their ideals are all devoid of substance. The literature of adventure is largely a falsehood. The tales of the Old West comprise a literature, a historical literature about something which never existed. Do you know how much of American literature is built on the tales of the Old West? The Wild West, cowboys and heroes and sheriffs, the whole story is lo haya velo nivra. It never was. You might be surprised to hear that. Yes, there was a West. Do you know where the West was? Way out West, there were Spanish communities and Mexicans. You know, Spain owned a big part of America in the West. And there were, there were settled communities. More or less, settled communities. And who came out from America? Who were the pioneers who headed out West? Desperados, drunks, and criminals. And they disrupted the Mexican and Spanish communities. They came in and they committed acts of terrorism, of vandalism, of immorality. And the Spanish did not know what to do with them. And finally, the Spaniards were driven out. After many years, better elements came and settled. But as a result of the early invaders from our side, a big literature developed a literature of heroes who came and fought against the greasers. That's the Mexicans. The Mexicans are called greasers and they're portrayed as low characters. I don't know if you people see it anymore in the, in the movies, but in the olden day, in the olden day movies of 50 years ago, all the Mexicans were portrayed as low people and the Americans were all noble people. By the way, they were all clean shaven too. I don't know how they were clean shaven out in the West in those days, but that was part of the history. They were all clean shaven and good looking. So the clean shaven American came out, a cowboy, of course, and he fought against the wicked Mexican, the wicked Spaniard. And of course, wicked Indians. There's no, that's no question. The Indians were all wicked. 
You had to kill them all, so they had to be wicked. And who were the American heroes? The sheriffs. Who was your sheriffs in those days? He was a low character. Only he could shoot faster than somebody else. So they made him a sheriff. One reason for his appointment was to prevent him from shooting innocent victims. He wasn't a man of virtue. The whole story from the top to the bottom never happened. It's Shekhar because of. It has no foundation. This is from good authority. I'm not saying my own. It's from good authority. The whole story is made out of thin air. And it's one of the biggest branches of our literature here in this country. So if we take out of the libraries all the stories of the Wild West that never were, that never happened, and we would subtract all the novels that revolve around the subject of Arayus and empty adventures, we would be left only with the lies of the scientists. Ah, the tremendous and empty theory of evolution. It's one of the foundations of Western society today. Accidental evolution. Among the so-called educated in all of the colleges and universities, evolution is a given. It's an axiom. And yet, we take a look and we see something that's so superficial and yet it's so fundamental. It's so simple. It's so close to our eyes to see. But it's so true that it should knock all of the scientists out of their chairs in the colleges. It should unseat them and send them out to work for the sanitation department. And if you think that this is mere fetishiousness, then you should listen to this. One of the most simple observations is that all the fruits all over the world, when they become ripe, they either fall down from the tree on their own or they become loose. That one shake will make them come down off the tree. It's an observation that anybody can make. So the question now arises, could that be the result of an accident? Why is it that all the apple trees, as long as the apple is green and hard and sour, the tree holds on tightly to it? The same is with the orange tree and the cherry tree. But when the fruit becomes ripe and fit to eat, it either become, it either comes falling down on its own, or it's so loose now that with one shake of the tree, it all comes down. Why is that all the trees that produce fruit don't continue to hold on tightly to the fruit after they ripen? The reason is because the world is purposeful. It's as clear as could be. The world is designed with plan and purpose. When we need the fruit, it drops. Is that because of an accident? If so, where are the trees that have not yet learned to drop their fruits and seeds? There should be some that are still on the way. There are millions of different types of trees and shrubs and grasses that produce fruits and seeds. So why is it that this stage in history, all we have are ones that drop off, that drop or loosen their fruits or seeds? Why isn't there one that doesn't drop? And we'd say that the one is still evolving, but there's not a single case. And the scientists have never found one tree, one bush as an exception to this rule. But do you know what the consequences of that is? The consequences are that you have to close down all the colleges, all the colleges, because from the Tivan Shel Krovim, from the things that we see with our own eyes, we should be drawing parallels to everything they're trying to teach. We're suspicious of everything. Now, we don't say that everything that the Goyim say is false. We wouldn't say such a thing. 
But the parallels that Hashem shows us makes us aware that the foundation of the outside world is Kulo Sheked. When you see such Sheked, why do you have to look further? This one detail that we do know comes to teach us about all the other details that we're not aware of. The whole thing is as sheker and it's as silly as can be. There's nothing even to talk about. This proof is on the surface. It's krovim. And therefore it's as clear as could be that the evolutionists are open liars in contradiction to the most open facts that our eyes can see. The truth is that I could even more easily bring you proofs, but it's not needed. Because from the little we do know, we realize it's all garbage. Oh, is it garbage? It's a dismal picture of degradation. There's nothing to look for among the Gentiles. And we have to take an example from what we know. And we're supposed to say, just as the f- fairy tales of Arias, and just as the mirages of the old Wild West never existed, they're Sheked Vikozov. We have to know that the writings of the scientists, I'm talking about the evolutionists and psychologists, the psychology section in the library is also extensive in some libraries, are Sheked Vikozov. Of course, there are some things that are exact. Algebra, you can't throw away those books. They have to remain. A lot of books on chemistry have to remain. You know, chemistry also has a big mixture of Shekhar today. But we'll be charitable. We'll let some of them remain. Books on physics, many must remain. Books on other sciences, the more or less practical branches will remain as well. But even many books on science will have to join the march out of the library into the great garbage can together with the romance and the Wild West. Now, once we start cleaning out the libraries and cleaning out the literature of the Gentiles, we're going to find that a great many forests in North America are going to be rescued. If you're an environmentalist who's worried about the forest going lost, you should know that this would be the first step to recognize that all of Western literature is built on false premises. Now, people will say, Rabbi Miller, what are you saying? You're making a a blanket indictment? Yes, that's the purpose of it. So that you should suspect it all, all of it, is Sheker. Because not only the corrupt theory of evolution, which is befouled, but even their practical writings misrepresent the issues of life. Travel, for example. All the travel books represent foreign places in the most alluring terms, which, which are entirely untrue. Now, are we going to waste our lives traveling to Paris and to the, and to the Amazon to recognize this truth? No, says Hashem. All you must do is take a look at the Krovim, the one or two examples which you do know about, and use those to say, just like there's nothing here, so too there's nothing there either. There's nothing to look at. Somebody once gave me a travel book. I don't know why I kept it. But I was reading it and I saw an interesting thing. He was describing two tours that he took through Germany and Austria. How he loved the people. Ah, such nice people. One tour was in 1930 and the second was in 1968. That means one was before the great affair, the great prank, and the second was after the great prank. And there's one word that recurs. It's repeated again 
and again. And that word is gemutlichkeit. It means the good nature, the kindliness of the Germans. Wherever you go in Germany and Austria, all he could find was such good-natured people. Now we happen to know how good-natured the Germans and Austrians are. By the way, the Austrians were worse than the Germans. The Austrians, those who loved song, you know, song and wine, the good nature of the gay people. Ah, the best of people, the books tell us. They were the worst of Jew fressers in the world. They were the most wicked people in the world. So what do we see from the travel literature? It's just Sheker. It's the opposite. Gemutlich. They're the most cruel in the whole world. What he describes with such love and admiration, we know, should be described in terms of abomination. The deepest hatred and indignation. Burning indignation. And so we learn that it's Sheker because of. All the travel literature is false. Even what's not against us. They happen to be against us. So we know it's false. What's not against us is false. It's all Sheker Vekozov. Because we know that the Germans and Austrians are a nation of the lowest, the most depraved criminals. When the Germans came into Lithuania and any other country, we know what they did. We have reports from survivors. The first thing they did was they sent around soldiers and took away children from their mothers. Little children. And they never came back. What happened to the children? It's a mystery. Maybe they were put in some home with nice clean beds, blankets on each one, and they're eating all together in a dormitory in the dining room. No! They were murdered. Immediately. All the Jewish children, a million Jewish children were killed by the Nazis. By the Gemutlich Nazis. It's better to live among the Zulus than among the Gemutlich, Western Euro- West Europeans. Why should I blame the poor Zulus? The Zulus are nice people, like the like the Al-Shtatarav once said. The last Al-Shtatarav from the Alstadt in Hungary wrote a book, Lo Sishkach, about his experiences during the Holocaust. He said from now on he's going to refer to the Austrians as wild animals. But he makes an apology first of all to the wild animals because there's no comparison. No comparison! But we do make up a comparison because the Pasuk and Parshish Re'eh teaches us to draw parallels. If the travel books can speak the praises of such countries, if they can tell us about the Gemutlikite, of a nation of criminals who slaughtered six million innocent in cold blood, an act in which the entire Germanish nation cooperated willingly. So we can draw a parallel to all the travel books. To us, these phenomena are important gifts from the Creator to open our minds to all the things we don't know about, all the good-hearted nations of the world who we don't have the time or the stomach to visit. When we scan the literature of the nations, we have to be on the lookout for similar things, to find parallels, to find parallels that reveal to us the falsehoods of the Umas Ha'olam. We're supposed to start with the premise that the Goyim are full of Sheker, number one. Yes, sometimes there are good things, but everything that the Goyim say must be taken with the utmost caution, because the Sheker is much more than the MS. And it's the Am Yisrael, the most important people in the world, 
who are given the opportunity to discover the falsehoods of the Gentiles. Because although we could easily demolish their ideologies, HaKadosh Baruch Hu taught us the important lesson that the nations of the world are not to be suspected of truthfulness when they present to us their history, their culture, their ideologies, their religions, and their ideals. That's the way of the darkness of this world. There will always be new and spectacular claims. There will always be new attitudes, new ideals, new isms, and new desires that arise to mislead mankind. And this endless process of new ideologies and new ways of finding happiness and success in life is part of the test of virtue, which the Am Yisrael endures in this world of darkness. But the Torah people, no matter how small we may be, have been in the business, this business for thousands of years. And we've already weathered many such mesisim and medithim who tempt us to come close and serve the gods of others, those that are near to you or those that are far from you. And one of the most important methods we use is the one HaKadosh Baruch Hu teaches us in this puzzle. From the nature of the nearby gods, you can learn about the nature of the far-off ones. Just as there is no substance in these, there is also no substance in those. The Torah inserts these extra words in order to give us direction for how to refute all the persuaders of the world, all of them. Just as you know that the nearby gods are nothing, so you can understand that the far-off ones are also worthless. Now I know that it will take a long time for people who have been oriented in other directions to feel this. I can't come here and in one lecture take minds that have been corrupted by so many years of miseducation. Minds that have been made filthy by the bilge water of the outside world and make you understand everything. But the first step is to learn the lesson of this week's Parsha. That the, that's the foundation. That's how to approach the whole problem of what does the Gentile world say in this world of false ideals where it's hard to see the truth this is the one of the great methods of strengthening our Muna and seeing through the darkness. And one day, when the world's history comes to an end, there will be, there will begin a new period of history, which will be all light. The time will come when the truth of HaKadosh Baruch Hu will shine and the world will realize that they have been bamboozled all along. And that time, the Am Yisrael will be established as the nation chosen by Hashem forever. But in the meantime, we receive our reward by using the methods of the Torah, the, mes- the methods HaKadosh Baruch Hu teaches us in order to fortify ourselves against all of the falsehoods of the outside world and to remain loyal to Hashem until the great day of Bayom HaHuyiye Hashem, Echad, Ushmo Echad. Have a wonderful Shabbos.